Hi, Jay. Uh, welcome. Um, Hi, thank we you. Talking a little bit about the weather, uh, and you guys got some snow. So did did everything shut down? Uh, no, no, no. It's you know, New Mexico has a little bit of snow equipment here, but uh, it was just an odd one because it uh, snowed. I think it was Thursday morning, uh, quite a bit, actually about four inches. But then uh, by the afternoon, the sun had come out, and by the evening, it looked like it had never snowed at all. So it's huh. kind of our typical okay. snow here in New Mexico. Right. Well, when on my most recent trip there, it snowed about two, three inches, and a lot of things were closed. I had a hard, hard time finding a restaurant that was open. <laughs> oh, you're kidding! Wow. Um, I, I was I was surprised. Of course, uh, you know we have a lot more equipment to deal with snow here. So. Oh yeah, right. and, and this is a this, this is the desert, so we don't we don't get as much snow down here in the valley. It's uh, in in the mountains. High elevation usually is where most of the snow falls here. Yeah, I would have thought that they could have handled the snow a little bit more up there, but oh well. Um, so okay, thanks for whoever's joining us. Um, this is Voices in the Wilderness. We're a show on faith and science um, that addresses questions by sex skeptics and Christians who are wondering how to fit science and faith together uh, and how does the Bible all fit into that. Uh, if you're watching and you have questions, we, you could put um, your questions in the comment section of the YouTube video or on Facebook. And um, if we have, have time, we'll try to get to some of your questions. And um, let me introduce Jay for you all. Jay Johnson spent 15 years as a magazine editor and publisher before embarking on a second career teaching English in the juvenile justice system. After he quit teaching full-time in 2016, he began researching the connection between younger creationism and the loss of faith among younger generations. Jay has written about evolution, original sin, and Adam and Eve for the Canadian American Theological Review, BioLogos, the Lutheran Coalition of Faith, Science and Technology, and God and Nature magazine, and for his website, becomingadam.com. And as far as we know, um, we're not related, uh, at least not for many generations back. So welcome, Jay. Thanks for coming. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. Um, maybe you could start out just by sharing a little bit about your background and how, how did you, as uh, an English teacher, start thinking about science and faith, and what was your family of origin like? How how did you guys integrate faith and science growing up, or was that ever something you talked about? Just let us know about your background. Uh, well, I, I, I grew up in, in the Texas Panhandle, in, uh, you know, uh, in the Methodist uh, church. Uh, um, we didn't have, we didn't really have an issue with science and faith in my house. I mean, I personally, as a kid, you know, would just uh, divorce myself from the things that I didn't understand, like like Noah's Ark. Um, I'd been to zoo, and I just try. I couldn't imagine all these animals fitting on an ark. And so, whenever the story came up in Sunday school, I would just kind of. Uh, ignore it as far as the science of faith question goes um i i was not one who who was taught that there's only one way to in, interpret the bible and and it's either 
you know, all literal or all untrue. So I didn't have to cross that bridge that a lot of other people have had to cross in their lifetime of, of trying to reconcile those things. Um, how my interest in, in this subject got started is, is a roundabout story. Really, it was, uh, I, I was uh, teaching a, a, a Bible study, a prison Bible study, and I looked around one day and, uh, you know, I had about 20, 30 guys in the group, but I suddenly realized that even though the prison population was, you know, around 22 years old on average, um, pretty much everybody in my group was over the age of 30. And I remember thinking to myself at the time, uh, well, if, if these guys won't come to me, then I find a way to get to them. And that was sort of the impetus for, you know, my change of careers when I, uh, uh, and uh, became a teacher in juvenile detention, um, kind of my way of reaching the kids. But, you know, as during that time, you know, say, uh, you know, the 2000s, 2012 or so, I was, uh, you know, my own kids were growing up, my own kids were teenagers, and, you know, among their friends and among the kids I taught, the, the younger generation just was, was walking away from the faith in a lot of cases, and they were struggling. And so, um, long story, moved here to New Mexico, and I was I was uh, teaching here, teaching special ed. But um, when I quit doing that, I really wanted to do a book. I had a, in mind doing a book about the loss of faith among the younger generation. And when I started searching the causes, one of the great causes that came up um, in Dave Kinnaman's book, "You Lost Me." one of the causes that really caught my eye was was so many younger people losing faith because of uh you know science questions and evolution questions and things like that so i you know i i didn't doubt the scientific facts of evolution but you know personally i i'd never been motivated to try to integrate that together with my own christian faith you know i I started looking for some resources, and that's how I wound up at BioLogos and working with them there. Eventually, um, I was a, a volunteer with them for a little while, um, mainly moderating discussions. But uh, that that was the impetus. That was the start of my uh, journey towards you know discovering this science and faith question and how. Um, you know, now we have a word for it in, in deconstruction. Mm. You know, at the time that I was looking into it, I, you know, that wasn't a common, common term. It was just, you know, people are walking away from the church, and 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 that that was that was the start of it for me. Glad to join you. I just wanted to let you know we're, we are up on Facebook and on YouTube. So if anyone would like to jump in with a question, we'll, we'll try and fit you in. Uh, although uh, we do have a time constraint and we've got a lot of questions for Jay um, on our own. 
I, I think just to follow up on Christine's question, uh, Jay, you write a lot about Adam. Um, you, you, it seems to be on your mind, um, and not only in some of the columns you've shared, but also um, on, on a podcast and so forth. So, how how? My question is, how did you end up stuck on it, Adam? And I, I, I'm going to try and tee you up by saying this. When you mention deconstruction, what happens a lot in evangelical circles is when people are finally confronted with their their faith upbringing that might have suggested that the, the opening chapters of Genesis are are literal in some way, whether it's a young earth or an old earth, there was a real, uh, you know, Adam and Eve and they're necessary and so forth. And then they might come into uh, an engagement with modern science and they feel that evolutionary biology and uh, deep time uh, is a challenge uh, to what their upbringing was. And some uh, believers uh, crumble in a crisis of faith. Others are excited and they feel liberated and they're excited that there was this corner of the world that they had dismissed out of hand that now now opens up their mind to really the beauty of uh, how things actually work um, in not just in biology but in geology and astronomy and other places but then they 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 say uh-oh when they think wait a minute didn't didn't jesus talk about Adam and Eve and didn't Paul you know put a lot of emphasis on the first Adam and Jesus is the last Adam so how do I make sense of Adam and Eve in an evolutionary context now and and so I'm I'm not going to answer for you but is is that kind of collision what got you interested in your becoming Adam, becomingadam.com, and, and that kind of uh, sense of um, urgency? Um, the, yeah, the focus on Adam really comes from, um, you know, my, my own background, too, is, is uh, you know, I, I grew up evangelical, and I, I, uh, I have some problems with the label these days, but I guess I would still claim it. But, uh, you know, in, in evangelical thought, and especially, you know, when you start throwing in things like inerrancy, um, you know, granted that there was a literal Adam and Eve, and I think uh, a lot of people also feel the same way. So, you know, how, how does that work with evolution? And how, how does that fit together. So, you know, the starting point for me was really not uh, trying to start with Romans or, you know, the New Testament. It, it really was, uh, what does Genesis itself say? You know, going and going back to the text of, of Genesis, you know, one through three and looking at it. And, you know, I think any uh, uh, honest thinking person who looks at it and, and isn't, um, you know, isn't locked into a certain ideological framework can look at it and say, well, you know, this is, uh, this is not quite what I thought it was. 
because uh, Adam isn't named in, in Genesis 2. Um, it's Ha-Adam, the man. And you know, Eve isn't named in Genesis 2 and 3. It's you know, Ha-Isa, the woman. So it, from there, and you look at the text, and, and, and you know, with an open with an open mind, there's a lot of room, I think, in there that that not just makes up, you know, and, and a population of people coming through you know, evolution versus, uh, you know, special creation of two individuals who were the very first humans and that all humans came from. Um, and especially when you start to look into the science of it, because uh, populations, a, a new species doesn't come out of just two breeding individuals, a breeding couple doesn't start a species. We, we came from a population. <clears throat> you know, that was the, where I had to start was going back to the text of Genesis itself at that and, and seeing things that that indicated really uh, a process and and not a poof. Does that make sense? Well, yeah, to, to me it might. To some of our listeners <laughs> who, who, who are still in evangelical circles, I think, you know, particularly my, my own upbringing, uh, I was kind of introduced to, to um, the Genesis story as um, narrative history you know, as something that right. actually happened. And so um, I didn't, wasn't really confronted about that till later in life. So hearing now suggested that Adam and Eve might not be literal or that Genesis might be more of a theological or a polemic even uh, text than yeah. something that actually carries, you know, what happened is challenging. Growing up in that kind of culture warrior Christianity that I grew up in, Jay, the the idea is evolution was evil. And so I know you casually mention it as as, right. as a scientific theory. But growing up, we were taught kind of that God created this near perfect, if not absolutely perfect universe. Um, and he called it very good. And that this fall, this rebellion between the first couple um, with the first couple led to everything nasty from thorns <laughs> to death to mosquitoes, you know, sex mosquitoes sexual hedonism, um, <laughs> predation with the animal world. I mean, the, the, the lamb did lie down with the lion until Eve and Adam ate of the fruit, and then all things, Pandora's box was shattered when Eve ate of the fruit. And long ages, people lived really long time back then, shrunk down to our ages. And so you kind of got the impression that things were perfect, and, and they've been on a downward spiral since Adam. You know, Adam probably spoke 11 languages, had perfect health and a great tan. He certainly wasn't follically impaired as two out of three of us are. No, no. Um, and <laughs> Eve was the perfect woman and, and, and everything just, you know, you see the chaos building from chapter three forward. But then evolution tells a very different story. I mean, it tells a story of um, 
really infantile hominins, you know, over time, all coming into a place where Homo sapiens go through a cognitive explosion, if you would, and we happen to uh, now not just look at the moon and howl, but actually be able to land uh, technology there and explore the universe. So you, you seem to have one graph that's going down, and that we'll call God's graph. And then we have Darwin's graph that seems to be going up. And, and then you come along saying these things aren't necessarily incompatible. So for, for, for those of uh, our viewers who grew up like I did, thinking that evolution isn't just a theory of biology, but is something that led to the Holocaust and sexual perversion and abortion and all that, um, I, I don't know that it makes sense. I mean, there's, there's these there's these words that are scary for people in that world and one of them is darwin one of them is evolution and right. you still have these christian groups that are basically backing that up um the creationism groups basically saying that yeah amen that's true so now in in your background you say you didn't have a problem as much with the creation and faith but you you did kind of dismiss early on the idea that Noah's Ark was a factual story. Um, right. To believers who are just grappling with this idea, um, that, that how do you explain, I, I guess this is my precise question. How do you explain okay. the fall from an evolutionary perspective? And how do you explain modern science from the Genesis perspective? Uh, the fall from an evolutionary perspective. Well, um, it's really uh, pretty straightforward. And if, if you look at uh, human evolution, and especially um, moral of uh, morality, and uh, you know, uh, I'm a fan of uh, Jonathan Haidt's writing in that regard, but. Uh, the direction it's it's going is really something like that. Way to picture it is uh, is as humans, you know, sitting here where we are now. Um, how did we get here? How did we how do we transition from you know animal um, to the fall? Humans who are able to reason abstractly and about things like morality and. You know, so if you look at it as uh, as a program, you know, an animal-like state where they do things that we would, as humans, would call evil, but uh, we don't condemn them for it. We don't look at it as, uh, you know, well, my dog was evil to chew up, chew up the bed. Chew, you know, that's not uh, something that would occur to us. Um, or you know to steal or to kill so how do we transition from that point of just being a you know morally ignorant you could call that innocent because you know like kierkegaard said innocence really is ignorance so the the innocence of adam and eve or the, in my terms you know the man and the who represent both they're an archetype 
they they represent both the and and every one of us as individuals so we made that transition too as a group as humanity we had to move from a, a place of of ignorance to a place of knowledge of good and evil and the, the paths it really has to follow uh, language evolution um let me jump in here because really even, we've oh, never sure. really given you an opportunity to express your opinion on adam and even if people haven't read your work they don't know but you just use the word archetypal um, right. so maybe you can give us just a, a a short definition of what you think of adam and eve were, did they were they real people what do you mean by archetypal what does that make genesis uh, well an archetype is uh, you know by the literary de definition an, an archetype is a symbol that represents a universal experience or a universal pattern in 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 human life in nature if you will so um to say that uh, uh, it's really just to recognize that the names the personal names adam and eve don't appear in the narrative of genesis 2 and 3. um the name adam doesn't even appear till genesis 5 uh, right at the beginning uh so the, the characters in the story are not a man, a person named Adam, or a person named Eve. Um, they're symbols uh, that stand for, you know, humanity in general. Uh, that's what uh, the word uh, Adam means in in Hebrew is, you know, human. And when you attach the well, the definite article to it, the in English, and say the Adam you're saying something like the human or the man you're not talking about an individual so right there at the start it's not uh, about one man or one woman and their failure it's really about uh, the human journey of a transition from from ignorance uh, to you know moral maturity moral knowledge did I answer your question? You you did, but I, I I know that. And recently, we've seen some you know blowback on on pages that we're all involved in that that handle these kind of questions from um, particularly young Earth creationists, but some old Earth creationists, which right. would say that um, they're they're going to bring up um, Jesus and they're going to say, listen, Jesus talked about Adam and Eve, and so I guess the oh, question. Yes, but in, in this particular sense, Jesus, because Jesus was more than Paul. And so uh, I think that the, they would ask you at this point, when Jesus mentions Adam and Eve and what it was like and, and their marriage and so forth, did Jesus know that they were an archetype or did, did Jesus believe they were a real couple? And if Jesus was wrong... Is that what you're trying to say, that the Son of God was wrong and we should listen to you and Richard Dawkins and not to Jesus and Ken Ham? <laughs> I think I had the same conversation this week already. Oh, Did you? Oh, no. 
<laughs> well, then I'll I'll I'll, I'll well, pose that for both of you. I'll pull, you could both take a swing at yeah. it. I think I've been fair with that conversation, though. No, that's a, a pretty yeah, pretty common. Well, did did you want to go first, Christine, or me? <laughs> oh, why don't you go ahead? You go go you go for I'll, it. I'll take a crack at it. And, I'll take a crack at it, and then you can correct me. <laughs> um, you know, my answer to that to begin with is is uh, Jesus doesn't mention Adam and Eve. And that and I can't climb inside Jesus' head and say, this is what he knew, didn't know. Um, so, so the passage there, you know, all he, when he mentions uh, really Genesis, uh, Genesis 2 there at the end um, to reference, you know, marriage, um, e even if you look at uh, Genesis 2, that, that particular text, uh, that, that particular passage comes after um, it's almost like an add-on really it's an editorial that's saying you know that that is thrown in afterwards to say you know that uh, to, to give a judge um, Jesus doesn't talk about Adam um, he references uh, you know Genesis 2 in regard to marriage he doesn't talk about Adam. That's my answer. Yeah. Well, I, you know, and I would say too, one of the important hermeneutical principles when looking at the Bible is, uh, at least from a conservative way of reading the Bible, is that we look at the, the context and the culture and the language and what was the original intent of that particular conversation. And it is a conversation about marriage, right? It's about... Mm -hmm. Um, the purpose of marriage and God's intention for marriage. Um, so it would right. be, I, I would say it would be a liberal idea to, di to divorce the context here and try to apply it to how long was each day of creation and how long ago did that occur? Uh, because that wasn't, that wasn't the context of that conversation. So um, if one right. wishes to do that, it is, I would say stepping outside of the uh, inspired text as it was written to make that claim. Um, so I would call that a liberal. Would you both agree, though, that this is the real sticking point with with people who have made the Bible their authority in this case, and they they understand a more literal sense? Do you would you both agree that it's not really Genesis? It's it's Jesus and Paul um, who seem at least to allude to a more, more literal. I would say, yeah, that's, that's definitely one of the drivers for why people want to hold on to the particular way they're reading those passages. Um, but again, I would say that's not, not just literal, but liberal in that it's kind of not considering the context of those passages. Um, um, maybe more so with Jesus's comment than Paul's. Paul's is maybe a little bit more, um, it, it could be that he actually believed in a literal Adam and Eve, but I don't know that an archetypal reading of that passage does it disservice either. So, yeah. No, and I would, I would, uh, yeah. I would point out um, that uh, well, even Paul, like in, in Romans, in Romans one, um, there's several evangelical interpreters who, who've 
do what Paul said um, as his version of the fall. Um, you know, and in, and in that passage, I'm talking about 18 to 25, uh, but in that passage, he, uh, he's not talking about a particular individual. You know, he's, he's going, but he does, he goes back to creation and, and says, you know, since the creation, people mm-hmm. have, have looked around and been able to, you know, understand God's divine power and attributes. And so they're without excuse. And the picture he drew is of kind of one of uh, God, God abandoning humanity and, and leaving us to our own devices. So we, you know, promptly turn to idolatry and, and, and evil. So, you know, if you look at it that way, you could almost say, well, you know, sometimes Paul uses Adam. Sometimes Paul speaks of, of the fall in, in general terms as, as involving all of humanity and mm-hmm. um, not just not just Paul alone. I mean, I mean, not just Adam alone being, you know, a soul problem who sinned and led us all down this path. I just don't like blaming it all on one guy, you know. Well, especially a guy who, it seems like those who who hold this perspective also tend to elevate Adam to almost this Superman uh, hero person who was perfect and sinless and able to name 50,000 different animals in the in the afternoon and Monday uh, and in this perfect paradise where he didn't even have to weed thorns and thistles and all was well and he had this pretty much perfect wife that was made just for him um in his situation that's how it always works though isn't it (laughs) well i mean that's my life i don't know about you (laughs) (laughs) Um, it, it just seems like yeah. like the way they pre- Adam is presented as a really different person that that's not very much like all of us. And the way Scripture talks about yeah. sin is about this is all of our stories. This is the story of Israel right. uh, constantly right. abandoning their God for the idols of the nations yeah. around them. Um, and this is our life too, where we constantly put ahead of God, our own, our own idols, whatever they may be. So uh, talk a little bit about this, this, this view where Adam is so perfect and how that maybe doesn't fit well with, you know, this big picture message of the Bible. Yeah, it, it really doesn't. Um, especially if, if you want to look at it, um, say from the perspective of, uh, of uh, covenant theology, reformed theology, where they view Adam as uh, a representative who represented all of us there. And uh, the problem that you have with that, it's, it's something that Kierkegaard pointed out in, in his essay, his book, um, on the concept of anxiety. But how, how exactly does a perfect Adam in a perfect environment a perfect Adam and Eve in a perfect environment with no, you know, no temptations, no sins, no, no knowledge of any of that stuff. How did they fall? How would it even occur to them to disobey? And 
and more importantly, how uh, how does such a figure represent me or represent any other human being in the world now? So this, this perfect man in a perfect environment um, somehow represented all of us and his failure is my failure and your failure. And it, it's a story that really doesn't add up because, you know, if somebody is to, to represent us, then they should, um, just like Christ, they should be subject to temptation like we were and, you know, grew up in a normal family, grew up in a normal small town, brothers and sisters, that, you know, the whole shebang that goes with it. Um, so it's easy, you know, to say that Christ um, represented all of us in, in his struggle with sin and and his you know life of obedience to god but um how does adam represent any of us in that sense you know he as far as the normal picture i mean the usual picture of adam goes he i don't see any connection to actual human life or reality even Quick question from um, a viewer, uh, Mr. Lizard. Do you think Adam Mr. and Lizard. Eve? Do you think Adam and Eve could be two literal people, but that not actually being their names? Well, Adam and Eve come out of a group of humans known as the pre-Adamites. Um, and that leads us into a question. Uh, maybe you can take that question. And wrap it up into one about a popular book that came out recently about the genealogical Adam and Eve, uh, written by Dr. Joshua sure. Swamidas. Uh, an idea that, as as somebody once quipped, um, you, you can um, have your evolution and your Eden too. Have your cake and your Eden too. Um, <laughs> the idea that outside of the garden, evolutionary biology and deep time and all that was taking place modern science was taking place but god specially created uh two individuals six thousand years ago who are genealogically related to us all and that kind of solves the problem that you're suggesting uh adam and eve being an archetype are so not wanting to dismiss mr lizard but he kind of brought us into this area can you take a swing at both of those yeah uh sure the first question again was uh is it possible that adam and people? eve were literal people that were you know uh, elected by god out of a pre-adamite say hominin group or early um, sapiens? you know sure that's 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 always you know and there are some uh, there are some who hold that idea um, like, uh, you know, John Walton or, um, John Stott, I believe, but, you know, it, it's, it's possible, it's possible, but you got to jump through a lot of hoops to do it. Like for instance, um, okay. If there was already a, a population of, of homo sapiens, of humans, um, you know, fully, 
fully human like we are, but yet uh, not, you know, not, well, they hadn't sinned in some way. So all you've got to try to deal with is um, if if God selected this this Adam and Eve for presumably a, a test, um, then you know they're <clears throat> they're selected out of a population of people. And at what point did He select them? I mean, were they children? Were they infants? Um, because if they were already fully grown adults, then uh, I have a hard time seeing how they could be called innocent or ignorant of sin at all. Um, that just that part just doesn't make any sense. Uh, the the other problem is really just uh, like if you're if you're well if he specially if God specially created um, two people Adam and Eve. And placed them in a garden, and and there's a population outside the garden of of people who came about by evolution. Um, if he special, if God specially created Adam and Eve and placed them in this garden, well, how did Adam learn to speak? First of all, uh, speech is something that you you know language is something you have to learn by doing practice. And, you know, the only way that you really you could get around that would be God would have had, a, had to have implanted memories in Adam and Eve's mind of, of how, how to speak. And once you start getting into things like God implanting memories in, in people's minds, you're getting into you're getting into real problematic territory. You know, that's not much different than God planting false evidence of an old earth that's you know the one, one problem with it the other problem is you, you you start to get into okay if god selected adam and eve out of a, an existing population um <clears throat> he almost would have had to wipe their memories from any kind of knowledge of good and evil so that they could have a fresh start and again that's problem and then they get cast out of the garden and if there's already people outside the garden they rejoin they join society and and they don't they would know nothing of me. I mean like I put it in one article I wrote I, you know Adam, how would Adam know not to people see or take other people's things how it doesn't make sense. He wouldn't have been socialized. He wouldn't know the rules of society. I mean, I could see, you know, I could see him dying of stupidity in pretty short order. Because <laughs> if you have two people who have never been socialized and don't understand the rules of society because they've never lived in society, they've only lived in a garden with the two of them and once in a while. Uh, uh, kind of just falls apart for me so i think the critics possible and you know i think the critics might say they had a pretty good tutor if they walked with god in the eve of the night though yeah but how 
Yeah. You're turning God, you're turning God into a nursemaid now. Yeah. You know? yeah. God, God, okay, okay. God so would have had there's a, another, Okay. There's this other ahead. kind of popular book right now that has putting Adam and Eve way back, um, hundreds of thousands of years ago, uh, not even being a homo sapien, but a Heidelberg, Gen, Gen, how do you Heidelberg say it? Heidelberg 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 Genesis. Genesis. Yeah. Um, so, okay. To me, when I when I read that, I thought, well, that doesn't sound like the kind of text that this is writing, where uh, we already have agriculture and and irrigation, and and it seems much more. Um, it, it seems very disconnected from from the biblical text. So, what are your thoughts on on that idea where Adam and Eve were like, you know, two three hundred thousand years ago, five hundred thousand years ago? Yeah, I think I think. 750,000 years ago was where uh, William, William Lane Craig wanted to put them in his book about, about Adam. Um, yeah, excuse me. I, I respect the fact that um, William Lane Craig did try to uh, follow out the evidence to where it led, to where it led him. You know, and in, in, his, his, in his search for Adam and Eve, you know, he was trying to look at things um, that would be necessary for humanity to fulfill um, or to be in the image of God. And, you know, he settled on a lot of the things like, uh, you know, um, symbolism and, and abstraction and stuff like that. So he follows, he followed out the evidence um, um, Seven or fifty thousand years ago, and he, he's in the right neighborhood as far as um, you know what I would call um, you know the beginnings of of being truly human. So you know I I would push it back to probably more like a million. But what what you're looking at is is you know Homo erectus. Um, and Homo heidelbergensis, and this related to language and related to symbolism. And the problem, um, the problem with with William Craig's uh, conception, yes, the the very very beginnings of, of language. Um, showed up around then but there's a huge difference between the first appearance of something and its full-blown spring into maturity so you know the things that he points towards say uh, those are human traits but it's that's not much different than saying and you know an infant is born in the image of god but they don't yet know how to speak. They don't have any concept of, of metaphor or symbolism. They don't have any even concept of God at that point. Um, all, those, all those things are, are learned and, and as their brains and bodies develop, they, they mature and they acquire those capabilities. So um, for myself, I would say Craig, is right in that uh, I would I would call those people uh, human, but I would compare them to you know infants or toddlers who 
they it's just the tiniest little beginning of things and if you try to lo locate adam there that's where that's where william blank craig really jumps the shark is you know because he has to resort to something like well god specially you know charged up their brain and language abilities and and specially gave it to them and that spread to other people and um yeah doesn't work <laughs> well since i've been kind of taking the position of a young earth creationist or a creationist in my questions towards you in regard to what you've just said i'm going to sure. flip the script and take a position okay. of a non-believer who happens to be um fine uh accepting world history and and evolutionary biology and i'm gonna say when i keep hearing about this idea of a fall i don't see it and if you look at evolutionary psychology um or people who've written uh, the author who wrote the faith instinct for example anthropologists who look at these these old civilizations that you and christine just brought up you don't see a fall away from an advanced religion you see uh, you see archaic religion that's that's built around yeah. um music and drums and chanting and it grows and as language increases as you say language becomes more important to these religions and and uh, from a from a you know kind of a spiral dynamics point of view we don't see a fall at all we see a climb we see religions all becoming more refined and yeah the old testament was kind of a blood religion with sacrifice and when they were agricultural there were meal offerings and we've moved away from yeah. that um in all in, all around the globe so how do you how do you as a christian try and explain to somebody uh, from that perspective what you mean by the fall Well, you know what I what I mean by fall is is this this moral maturity, the acquisition of, of this knowledge of good and evil, and um, I, well, I think I started to describe it earlier and I got sidetracked, so I'll try to come back to that and explain my concept of the fall again, which is really just you know it it is inevitable and also logical in the sense that. Um, Humans uh, had to progress from that animal-like state that I talked about earlier. You know, one of of uh, where we find ourselves now. The path that it went through was was language and symbolism, but it, it also uh, involved cooperation and things like altruism. You know, and things of that type of stuff in in the animal world um you know but we supercharged it so so in in one sense you could say that uh you know if, since i view god as guiding evolution and you know then then god is i see god bringing us along in cooperation and in you know lessened aggression because uh you know when a chimpanzee for instance runs into a strange edge of its territory uh, there's either going to be a confrontation or you know a display of aggression or something to drive that egg. so but in humans 
you know, what you start to see about a million years ago is uh, trade networks suddenly appear, meaning that, you know, the, the that, that is used to create a tool um, no longer just is found in the home of this person, but comes from, say, 100 kilometers away. So, you know, um, what you're seeing there is uh, there's trade going on between groups and, and trade implies language. It implies a lessened aggression between, between groups. So, you know, as cooperation increases and as, as uh, aggression, human aggression is lessened, um, it, it's called uh, self-domestication. It's like, we domesticated ourselves. Dogs to have d domesticated themselves to to us. Well, we we domesticated ourselves to to get along. And so so as you progress um, through history, you know, language, um, the group human groups get larger. You're going to have to have more you know kind of uh, behavioral rules. And, but these things aren't written down, really codified. And at a certain point in history, uh, humanity is going to cross that threshold where abstract language is invented. And once abstract language is invented, now certain actions can be categorized and, and put into groups called good acts or evil actions. So, you know. At what point do many become sophisticated enough to really understand the difference and to really speak about the difference and begin to reason about those things? And, you know, I estimate it was about 65, 75,000 years ago. But, you know, to cross that point is, is something that evolutionary psychologists also recognize where, you know, first you've got to have theory of mind. Um, which is uh, a fancy way of saying, um, I, I know what you're thinking and you're thinking. And that's necessary for call-up. Um, and all of those things kind of start to come together around 65, 75,000 years ago. So um, even... <clears throat> Even if I didn't try to put this in in, in context of, of Genesis and the story of the fall there, um, the story that I'm describing in terms of uh, humanity reaching a, a moral maturity uh, still is is factual and is is drawn totally from science. So that that aspect happened. I'm just simply saying that you know the first the first real instance of morally culpable sin occurred whenever people reached a certain point of maturity and and could really reflect on what was happening and think about and think about the fact of what was happening it happens in the life of a child you know a five-year-old doesn't have the language or the the brain development yet to for us to uh, put them in jail when they violate the law but, you know, by the time a child gets to, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, whatever 
whatever age it might be, um, they they do cross that boundary line between an adult and a and a child. So that's just kind of my perspective on on evolution and human evolution is really it's it's almost just that simple of you know we had to progress from animal to and morally speaking uh the transition period you could compare to childhood where you know our brains our language skills our reasoning skills and you know ability to understand realism was was progressing like for as I've mentioned, you know, William Lane Craig and, and, and you know, he points to some certain uh, aspects of symbolism that appear early on in the archaeological, archaeological record. Well, um, oh, sorry, my dog distracted me for a second. <laughs> um, where I was going with that, let me think. <laughs> Oh, but yeah, oh, I got it now. But, you know, the first instance of symbolism is not full symbolism. It's not full humanity. It's, it's, it's comparable to say, um, you know, a toddler, uh, a two or three year old can recognize, um, you know, oh, this red octagon on, on the road means stop. Or the red light means stop, let's go. That's not symbolism. When you process a symbol, symbols one at a time, it, it's not symbolism. That would be like, you know, comparing comparing that to modern humans would be like saying, well, the toddler knows, he knows what the stop sign means. He's ready to drive. Yeah, doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So, so okay, so, you know, we've kind of been talking about language and, and you have a background in English teaching and literature. So... Let's talk a little bit about like the literary genre of Genesis 1 to 11, for example. Um, you, you know, you hear a lot of people saying we should just, the plain reading of the text. Um, <laughs> so just, you know, is, is that how we should read it? Like just hand it a plain reading the text to this the five-year-old, right? Um, who's well, just knows these, just has just learned these well. words in kindergarten. <laughs> And just use, just give it to them and say, what's the plain meaning, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, no. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, it's like, a, uh, as far as the, the genre, um, I don't think it's really that difficult of a question, honestly, because um, I, I just think that... Uh, evangelicals for the most part just just have um an allergy to the word myth because you know if you look at if you look at the text it does exactly what a myth does um you can you know if you really want to study the all of the all of the exemplars um examples of that would be you know the ancient near eastern uh mythologies that that all uh, share a lot in common with with early genesis you know you can you can point to every aspect of of genesis 1 through 11 and and there's a, a mythological comparison you know uh, comparison that you know like uh john mentioned a minute ago about a 
polemic. Um, you know, that's that's what I believe Genesis 11 is. It's really a polemic and against um, ancient Near Eastern Ionian and Assyrian, you know, mythologies. So um, as far as the genre, it's pretty clearly myth. And I, I, I only think, I think people uh, argue about it only just because they're afraid of saying, well, you know, if it's like a if it's like Roman or Greek mythology, well, that's that's all gone by the wayside, and nobody believes that stuff anymore. But um, that's that's just the wrong way to look at it, um, you know. But it's like an example I give. If you if you handed me a, 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 a middle schoolers, and, and you know, I had a few weeks to teach them about you know different genres of literature literature, um, you know, folk, folk tales and legends and mythology and, you know, biography, autobiography, novel, whatever it might be, historical fiction, I mean, not historical fiction, but historical narrative. If, if they were totally unfamiliar with, with the story of Genesis, had never heard of Adam and Eve before, then I sat down this story before them and said this and in your plain English translation, with no context, no knowledge of the culture, and and said, uh, you know, read this story. Tell me what genre it is. Um, I honestly don't think I would get a single one who would say, "Oh, this is history." And if they did, I would I would probably fail them. <laughs> that's that's my angle on it. It's it. You know, like William Lane Craig, for instance, in his book, he tra he he took a lot of flack because he labeled it uh, mytho history. And the I he he took flack in it mytho, but I would have given him flack for labeling it history because I I don't think you can look at the fact that um, that it contains genealogies and say okay now it's historical, um, because you know, even even the comparison to like the Sumerian king list, the Sumerian king list isn't historical. Um, it's got, you know, well, the older part of it, I mean. Yeah. All right. So so just really quick unpack um, for those who think, oh, my goodness, this guy just said the Bible is a myth and it's not true. Um, just <laughs> is, is that what you mean? Oh, I'm sorry you cut out on me there. For, I didn't hear you, question. All right. So, so for those who just heard, this guy thinks the Bible mm -hmm. is a myth and it's not true. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> no. <laughs> I'm saying that the, the Bible is full of all kinds of different genres, and and you have to interpret uh, the, you have to interpret according to genre is one of the starting of how you interpret something. Is it, is it poetry, history, is it myth? And so, yeah, this early part of Genesis um, is myth. I, you know, I personally can make connections between uh, history and, and early Genesis, you know, which is what I've done with saying that there actually was a historical fall. But um, if you try to if you try to extend that into 
um, Genesis four and five and six, the you, there is no real connection to the history to history there. And that that should be obvious, but it's it's not. People resist it. So, I, if I say you know Adam and Eve and and people living for nine hundred years are are myth and and not meant to be taken as historical. Um, that doesn't have anything to, that doesn't reflect at all on other parts of the Bible. Uh, like, you know, I've heard it claimed, oh, well, you know, if Adam's a myth, then Jesus must be a myth too. Well, no. The, we are uh, running short, short on time. I'd like to um, share another quote from one of our viewers um, and maybe sure. ask you, to d delve into a definition based on Christine's last question to you. But uh, viewer Clark, oh, I'm sorry, no. Uh, Buddy Spaulding asks, any idea what percentage of the evangelical pastorate might be willing to consider non-concordism if someone prominent enough would be brave enough to say it's okay? So I'm gonna let you swing at that, uh, Jay. But before I do, I, I, I'd like you maybe just to, um, he used the word concordism. It might be new to some of our viewers. They might not understand what it means, although you've just been talking about, which is the idea yeah. kind of uh, that Genesis is narrative history or that you could find modern science in it or that it's describing the, the ancient science it's describing is true. So maybe you can give me your own definition of concordism and then take a swing at uh, Buddy's question there. I'll put it back up for you. Um, sure. Let's, um, my own definition of concordism would, is just simply trying to make every detail in the text match up to historical realities. So, you know, in Genesis 11, Tower of Babel. Well, it, if you're trying to look at that as historical, then you're thinking to yourself, well, at one point in history, everybody spoke one language and then, you know, God's judgment and that's where languages come from. Um, or, you know, in Genesis 1, the old earth folks trying to look at Genesis 1 and say, well, you know, the fact that... Um, the light appeared before the sun and moon or plants were growing before the sun was created is, is just reflecting the fact that, well, the earth was very cloudy, I quite see the sun yet. So that, that is concordism. It's trying to make every detail in the text match some historical reality. Um, uh, with Buddy's question, any idea what percentage might be willing to consider? Um, I don't think that uh, I don't think that it, it, somebody prominent coming out saying it's okay is is uh, going to sway any minds at this point, honestly, um, because you know even folks like uh, Tim Keller, for instance, will will say they don't have a problem with evolution, but, you know, he still wants to hold the Romans 5 and say, well, there had to be some kind of historical atom in there somewhere. 
there. You know, it, you can you can look at the number of people, you know, like others who have written for BioLogos and have done things for BioLogos and have come out and said that, uh, you know, they don't have a problem with it. But um, really the problem seems to be, uh, you know, with the young earth creationists, um, Older people sometimes have a problem with evolution, sometimes don't, but they, they definitely want to stick to historical atom. But um, as far as Buddy's question, I, 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 don't, I don't have a feeling that, you know, if so-and-so and so-and-so come out and said, hey, it's okay to interpret this way, that suddenly a, a, there would be a huge turning if of I, the tide. If I can just second that by combining your answers to the last two questions, I'd say um, okay. there was another English lit guy um, who was pretty prominent named C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. And when he read the Bible, he said it. it was clear to him that early Genesis was myth. And when he read the Gospels, he said it was clear to him that th yeah. these contain uh, eyewitness testimony. Uh, he, he could see the difference. He did think Jonah was also myth, uh, carried the characteristics of myth, and that made yes. him controversial. Yes, do I. But as far as prominent people, buddy, um, C.S. Lewis was pretty prominent. Um, Billy Graham <laughs> was pretty prominent. And yeah. no one, they were dismissed over their views on, yeah. on non-concordism. And I would just say... Uh, Franklin Graham recently, who's, by the way, well-respected in, in, in those circles of evangelical fundamentalist circles, he came out recently yeah. uh, about a year ago encouraging people to get the vaccine, and he wasn't embraced for his view. He was savaged by the very people who share all his posts. So I think this is so emotionally ingrained. I think this is a a generation that has to die in the wilderness. I don't think even even God in 40 years in the wilderness of sin will help these these people. There there will be exceptions. You're looking at one. I'm an exception. But I think it, it's going to be a, a rare thing. I think the next generation, the younger generation is doesn't have such a combative relationship with uh with modern science and I think there's hope there. But I, as far as the old dogs I agree. I, I agree with Jay on that. So, and Christine, do you want yeah. anything you want to say about well, that? You know, I, like I think there's going to be almost like a split or divide that's going to come come up, and this is going to be one of those issues that's going to be part of it. Because I I see with COVID, there have been a whole bunch of new homeschool families that have arisen that are going to walk down the path of young earth creationism and for a whole new generation. Um, and that could lead to yeah. a lot more crisis of faith for those kids as they um, reach university age. So, it will. Um, yeah. So, so one concern I have is too often pastors and apologists and youth leaders they teach that people who accept mainstream science aren't really Christians. I mean, we've experienced that personally. I've I've been told that my kids have yeah. been told that. At I've church. been called a heretic. <laughs> and but but this means. If that's the message, this means that salvation by grace through faith in Jesus isn't sufficient for salvation. That there's a requirement also for salvation that, that that's how, how you view, bi view biology. 
Um, and to me, that seems very problematic. Uh, and so I want to go tie this all the way back to your very first, the beginning of the interview where we were talking about um, your correlation between this young earth creation and people leaving the faith. So talk about what you see as this correlation and this problem um, that's facing, uh, I, I know not all families are young earth creationists, I understand that, but um, an awful lot of them are. And, and there are non-homeschool uh, families too. Right. And, you know, it, yeah. And like I said at the beginning, that's, that's really what got me into this, this whole line of inquiry was, you know, the younger generation. And that, cause that's, that's where my heart is. And, and that's what I care about. Um, I like John, I, I don't have uh, a lot of hope for, you know, the people of, of my generation and even younger um, coming to a big change of heart here. But, you know, it's really the, the younger people, the, the, the problem is they're, they're, they're losing faith because they're, they're being told that they must believe something that is just factually untrue. And this the whole and that that whole mindset extends to all all sorts of anti-science positions now especially in this you know age of covid where where the anti-science mindset is is literally killing people and you know my i guess my advice is just it's time it's time for you know the homeschoolies and and you know, parents of young kids, parent, well, parents of kids of any age, really, just to you know, don't don't push the idea that it there's only one way to interpret the Bible. There's only one way to understand this. That science is somehow a giant atheist conspiracy, which is just ludicrous. You know, you might as well believe that the moon landing was faked. So I hope I answered your question, but my feeling is just I I think we need to work on the younger generation and you know and parents of of younger kids or you know parents of teenagers um don't give them that one way has to be this way type of you know religion because when you leave them with no way out and then they discover that um, what they were taught is true, um, a lot of them do just sneak out the back door and never come back. Well, and, and why wouldn't they, right? If you have someone in the pulpit yeah. saying, um, you know, if evolution's true, then Jesus didn't rise from the dead. And then you find out that evolution is true. Then where, where do you question go? everything. So, yeah, yeah, I would, what else I, did they tell me that's not true? I would just add right. to what you both said, and I know you both know this, but just to make it clear for our viewers, I, I don't think this is necessarily just um, true of young earth creationists. I, I, I think um, most Christian apologists are are old earth creationists or discovery institute guys id guys 
and they're <laughs> extremely anti-evolution they they carry that banner that you know it's it's the bible or evolution you can't have both so I, I i think at least in the western world here um it's pervasive in american evangelicalism to uh have that kind of bias that anti now some will say well you know um reasons to believe and the hugh ross organization they they're not but they they are when you know now they get to the hominins uh they you know they uh, they're okay with the animal evolution yeah, they're okay with animal bit. evolution. Only a little bit. Not not really. They have yeah. like that whole like grass image where they yeah. still say they're separate ancestry. Yeah, I really do think that the Enlightenment, Christine, you bring this up a lot, the, uh, the Enlightenment and the Reformation were a one-two blow that, that was, uh, there were some positive things that came out of the Reformation, but just a one-two blow of negativity in this area is how uh, one of the th ways how you approach the Bible changed uh, after the Reformation and, and certainly the overreaction to German textual critics and so forth with inerrancy, I think has really been a perfect storm in the evangelical world that's just now, that just truly is now um, shipwrecking a lot of faith. Um, it is, yeah, yeah, it's yeah. a whole new conversation there. Uh -huh. yeah. Right, so, and yet there, there was so much good, it's just unfortunate that the level of, um, I, I would almost say, English literature ability to read and understand literary passages is part of the problem. And part of the problem is the lack of science education in our country that people just, I mean, have no idea. Um, yeah. you, they can just say something totally wild about science and think it's reasonable. Um, That's yeah. true. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination just, uh, of a lot of things. I don't think they realize that uh, the mountains of of evidence that they're arguing no, against. No. Well, I I think one of the things that helped me as somebody who, who lived through what you're talking about um, wasn't, I didn't consider the evidence, Jay, uh, until nope. I, I felt allowed to um, by oh, yeah. meeting other Christians. Um, my I thought I was well read on, on the subject, but I was only reading from within the tribe. Um, and uh, it was Francis Collins and the language of God that helped me overcome my bias towards that mountain of evidence that I would dismiss mm -hmm. with kind of what I had learned from from my education, which was quite narrow until that time. It wasn't until I learned, I never even realized there were Christians who accepted evolution growing up. Mm -hmm. I just thought that that was just atheists. and. So yeah. I think part of it for me, and that's one of the reasons we do this show, is to introduce our audience to actual believers, actual Christians who have not only no problem with modern science, but in, uh, in many cases are, are help promulgating advances in modern science and, and sharing um, an education in it. And so that was very helpful for me. But, you, you know, the evidence, there's a lot of evidence you know, even uh, about the coronavirus uh, topic, it's just that people are very selective with the evidence. They, if you, if you share an article and it's not from their tribe, not a tribal approved 
Fox News or the Wall Street Journal yeah. or uh, if the speaker isn't from Hillsdale College or Liberty University, they're they're not going to listen, uh, you know, because that that person's probably a yeah. just liberal. So uh, <laughs> a Democrat. <laughs> yes, yeah. So we, I mean, we do have a lot of baggage. So I, I haven't asked this hard question in a long time, but I might as well ask it because you both kind of teed it up perfectly. Um, where right. is the Holy Spirit in all this? I, if Christians are so behind mm -hmm. in so many areas, I mean, I don't see a lot of people taking, uh, searching, uh, raising money in churches to search for the location of Pandora's box. Um, and, and yet the, the idea of the, the early Genesis myth is real in the minds of many people. And, and the Scopes trial seems like a long time ago, but it still seems like we're um, dividing up sides based on, on stuff like that. So, I mean, if we have the mind of Christ, if, if we have the Holy Spirit and we have these advantages over the natural man, we have the Bible and we have... Uh, all these great advantages. Why are Christians, why did they drag their feet for a couple hundred years over astronomy? And why are they still dragging their feet over biology? Why, why is it such uh, like pulling teeth to, to get our group, our family, um, that, who seems like the drunk uncle sometimes, to admit that a mask <laughs> might be a good thing um, in a global pandemic and a vaccine oh, might be a good thing? Yeah, well, if you're asking, uh, you know, where where is the Holy Spirit who we were promised would guide us into all truth uh, when we read the scriptures? You know, I I have to go back to the idea that uh, you know the the truth that it's talking about there is is you know uh, saving truth, not truths about the natural world or truths about um, this is this is the only valid interpretation of this passage or or you know the Holy Spirit tells me that uh, Jonah has to have been a real historical figure for, versus something else so you know I, I don't see the role I see the role of the Holy Spirit there is, is in, in scripture reading is speaking to the heart and speaking to uh, spiritual truths and spiritual things, um, not speaking truth about the natural world. Um, otherwise, you know, like for instance, I saw somebody making a claim on, on social media the other day that, uh, you know, reading the Bible makes you more intelligent. Really? I need to read the Bible more. <laughs> I mean, if you weren't reading anything, if you weren't reading anything ever at all and you read the Bible, it would make you more intelligent just because reading opens you your mind to be better. You would, you would you just, learn some things. The more you read, you just learn to think better if you read. So that, there could be a case possibly. True. Maybe, well, maybe that's a case for reading. That's a case for reading. Yeah. You, know, you, you pull the... Yeah reading anything <laughs> yeah you, you changed the category yeah. there christine <laughs> I, I don't know but the bible is full of different genres i think i think that's a good thing um there might be maybe a better case that reading the bible helps you become more intelligent than say um well my, you know like a, a, like a very 
a fiction, only fiction or only um, pop, pop magazine type stuff. But my medicine chest is filled with medicine too, but uh, it matters very much which bottle you grab for when you're having the heart attack. Um, uh, oh, yes. I, you know, I, don't don't push my analogy too far. Okay, All right. <laughs> fair enough. Uh, that's fair enough. I always go to Harper Lee in, in that situation. A, a Bible in the hands of one man is as dangerous as a bottle of whiskey in the hands of another. Uh, a, you know, a Bible to me too. is is a tool and it could be misused and many times it's misused and has been what's has wrong been. with i'm calling i'm calling for both and there bible in both one and. hand yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah that sounds good well i you know we're kind of running low on time but we really appreciate appreciate your your conversation today and the thoughts really interesting um i particularly like thinking about about how different Adam would be from us if he were like the superhuman person um, and and how that would completely change the conversation around uh, what would it mean to sin in that situation compared with how we live today. That was just really interesting to me. If my mother was here today, she'd correct you both and let you know that Adam was probably the father of the Syrian people. Um, because, you know, Assyria is mentioned in Genesis 2. And then, of course, Abraham was an Assyrian. He was from the Ur of the Chaldees, and he's the father of the Jews. So, I mean, God God knows um, how to start a race, you know, how to start a people. But my, my dear mother... Um, Never disagree with your mother. Yes, that's true. Uh, although my father would chime in. He was a pastor, and he'd say, well, you know, look what God says about Assyria. You know, they were more beautiful than Eden, but now they're they're uh dead. you know yeah they're dead because they they crossed a few wires um but i would i would like to say one thing jay i really appreciate your your view i think the, the way you deliver it too is wonderful i love uh reading what you do um i hope that you take up the podcast again soon because i really um enjoyed your yes. podcast and want to encourage you to Thank do you. that. It was, um, as Christine said, a real blessing to have you on the show today. People can get in touch with you uh, on social media. I know I, I know you from Facebook, but becomingadam.com is, is where you post. Um, recently, uh, you shared an article with, uh, was it a Lutheran? A Lutheran media yes. outlet? And uh, that's, yeah. 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 Lutheran Alliance for Science and Faith, yeah. Yeah. So uh, again, and we're, we're grateful that you you're with your work for BioLogos. So, uh, folks, we encourage you to follow Thanks. Jay Johnson. He's a gentleman and a scholar. And uh, Christine, I'll give you the last word. All right. Well, thank you, everyone, for joining us today. We appreciate your time and um, just your support. Thank you so much. Thank you.